Uh, Jess is 34, and she's married. She lives up in London with her husband, goes to church up there. And our youngest daughter, Ellen, is 30. She lives at home with us and uh, is involved in church life. So, in a sense, the biggest prayer for our kids is that they've come to faith, um, has, in God's grace, been answered. Um, Outside of church life, I got fully middle-aged last year um, by buying a caravan. And, uh, you know, I, I hate caravans. I've spent 30 years driving behind caravans going, why do they have names like Explorer and Cavalier when they're plastic boxes that make everyone else go so slowly? But now I have one. And uh, my wife and I absolutely love it because you're just in the countryside. We've always had dogs when I was growing up and uh, as, as, as a sort of a family, we've, we've had dogs and Labradors and Collies and yeah, we love walking out in the countryside. Um, like lots of you, probably not a huge amount of time to do a huge amount of hobbies outside church looking after the family and walking the dogs. Uh, my family nearly bought me a t-shirt um, for my uh, last significant birthday because uh, I like talking about sport, I enjoy sport. Uh, and, and it had the slogan on it, the older I get, the better I was. Um, and I, I just thought, yeah, my kids sort of understand that they, they, had a, they had a father who could have played for England if things hadn't quite worked out, or, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a frustrated sportsman who played at a, a, a very low level in quite a few sports um, and are now realising that my knees won't even let me do low-level sport at a low standard. Um, but genuinely enjoy life. And you're from the Sunshine Coast. Uh, can you tell us a little bit how you ended up at Eastbourne, the route there? Great. Um, I'm the vicar of All Souls Eastbourne. We've been there 13 years. Um, and it's right in the heart of the town, right by the shopping centre. Eastbourne has huge pockets of poverty. And uh, our parish is one of the most deprived parishes in the country. So the Church of England has about 12,800 parishes. All Saints Linfield is about 90. Uh, sort of the, the 90th richest, if one is the, the best parish to live in via sort of various demographics. Uh, 12,800 is the worst, and we're 11,500. Um, so it's really interesting. So you go to some parts of Eastbourne and you think, oh, this is very nice. The bit we live in isn't. Um, but God's given us a ministry there. Before then, we were in the countryside. We were in Horham. Uh, before that, we were serving my second curacy as an assistant minister uh, in a church in Hove, and before that, uh, I did a curacy in central London. Uh, and basically, we've never looked for a job, we've only ever moved when someone said, have you ever thought about this? We've just got on where we are until God moves us on. And uh, you're involved with other Christian sort of set-ups or organisations, you want to just mention that? Uh, you uh, are part of the Sussex Gospel Partnership as a church, and our church is part of the Sussex Gospel Partnership. And uh, I think it's absolutely brilliant that churches can come together to resource training, events, conferences. Uh, I've been involved in the SGP since its inception and uh, have the privilege of serving alongside people like John with the SGP. We've had SGP today, which was one of the meetings. Um, And I'm also part of Bible by the Beach, which some of you may have been down to. Happens the first bank holiday in May. Have about 1,200 adult delegates, 400 kids. uh, Take over the Congress Theatre and uh, it's wonderful. So we're just starting to, sort of all the big bits are in place for next May. Now we're starting to get to all the details. Thank you. Well, you can have a seat while I'm going to pray and then I'll hand over to you to lead us into our first session. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love your word. 
and we thank you to be in this great letter of Titus uh, this evening. We know that it's such a packed word, such a, a relevant part of your word, and we thank you to have the privilege of of learning about your grace and the way it should work out in our lives. And we especially pray that by your grace and the work of your spirit, that we might be blessed as men this evening as we have your word open. We pray that what we think about will help us as individuals, men before God, seeking to live out your grace in our lives. We pray, Lord, that uh, it will help us as men in our family situations, that we might be God-honouring in the way in which we live. We pray that it might help us as men together in church and that uh, an evening like this may strengthen bonds of fellowship and encourage us in living for you. We pray that uh, times together like this might help us as men in society to be an influence for good, to be witnesses for you, uh, to be a means of grace to others in the community of you as you have been so gracious to us. So help Mark as he leads us through, make us receptive and we commit this time to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, do come up there Mark. Well, let me encourage you to turn to Titus chapter 1. It's on page 998. never quite understand why in uh, Bibles the title page never has a number. seems like the page that most needs the number never has the number. Have you ever noticed that before? So Titus uh, chapter 1. Let me read it to us. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, 
evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's a great line, isn't it? This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelievers, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, I prepared uh, in the NIV, so I'll stick to that. And uh, having read the ESV through now, I think it will be very easy to follow. Um, A well-known search engine in a little over 0.5 of a second gave me over 7 billion hits on how to stay healthy and fit. Now, I would be well dead before I could read even 1% of those articles. And the same well-known search engine, in a little under 0.5 of a second, gave me over 217 million hits on how to grow a healthy church. Now, I would be well-retired before I could read 1% of them. So there's a huge amount of information out there, and yet we probably all struggle with our health and fitness, and churches certainly struggle with being healthy. Uh, We tend to sort of tie ourselves in all sorts of knots for all sorts of reasons. Now, of course, there are standout resources. There may be a couple of dozen books on fitness that are really worth getting hold of or reading and there may well be a couple of dozen books that are really good about church health. But this I think is really important for us to grasp. Our problem is often not lack of information but it's lack of implementation. So we hear but we miss, we ignore, we reject what is staring us right in the face. And we go to the next book or the next article because actually we've not implemented the last thing we read and we're not growing or maturing. We're just getting more and more information. Implementation is often the problem. Now, is a book on how to establish a healthy church, how to live life as healthy Christians. And I suppose the question for us is, will we listen to what Titus says to us? Um, Or will we go to the next thing that we think will grow a healthy church or grow a godly character? Will we actually take what we look at together this evening and pause and reflect and pray that in God's grace, Titus and what is written here will transform us? We're going to focus mainly on verses 5 to 9 with a little bit of time in verses 10 to 16. But how do, how do we get to verse 5? What is going on in verses 1 to 4? Well, as Paul writes this book to a very young church, he wants them to be encouraged with some remarkable truths. So we can see right at the beginning that the people of God were known by God before eternity and they will be kept for all eternity. Isn't it remarkable, as we sit here this evening, with the struggles and the strains, responsibilities and pains, of the lives that we live here in this broken world, 
Each one of us who professes Christian faith, you were known by God before he called creation into being. And you will spend eternity with God because of the grace of the gospel that has worked in you. You live your life in this wonderfully secure place, known and loved by God before the foundation of the earth, and known and loved by God for all eternity. That is a wonderful foundation on which to live. And uh, we get all sorts of foundations flagged up in those first few verses. Uh, We are told that as God's people we have a hero, we have a rescuer. He is Jesus. And uh, it is wonderful to think that the Son of God stepped into his creation to rescue people like us. And I don't think I pause and think about that often enough for long enough. Um, For all sorts of reasons, we feel insecure. We feel insecure in relationships. We feel insecure financially. Perhaps we feel insecure in our health, in our homes, with our children, with our spouses. We don't need to feel insecure with God. And as Christian men, I think sometimes an insecurity in God reflects itself in an insecurity we feel with other people. I think reflecting on how secure we are in God and the fact that we have a hero who has rescued us and we are safe and secure for eternity, I think it can give us a grounding and a foundation of men as men that enables us then to live well uh, in the other relationships the Lord has given us. Um, But also as we go through these opening verses, we see in verse 3 that Paul has been entrusted to open God's word, to preach God's word. And there we get the first hint of how to grow a healthy church. How do you grow a church that is vibrant and alive? You grow it predominantly and primarily by teaching the word of God. Opening up the word of God. And preaching the word of God is so powerful It often feels like foolishness. It looks like foolishness. But the word of God is so powerful that when the word of God is opened up appropriately in various settings over the weeks, the months and the years, it is remarkable that it takes people like verse 12. I don't know how, how would people summarise the men of Forest Fold? If they had to write 20 words to describe you as a group, what type of things would they put in it? Well, a poet of Crete, one of their own, said this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. Well, thanks. If the friend says that, you're in trouble, aren't you? That's what they were like. They lived in a licentious, immoral, unbelievably hedonistic culture. That's what they were like. That's what each one of us, if we'd lived in Crete before the gospel touched our lives, would have been like. Rubbing shoulders and living like this in a culture that's so, so warped. And yet, what does the gospel do as it's taught and it's preached, as the word is opened? It transforms people into men that we will see described in verses 5 to 9. It is incredible what the word of God does. Um, So let's look down at verse 5. The reason Titus was left behind. Um, Can you remember a school trip or an event when someone got left behind? I think it's harder to leave people behind nowadays because everyone has mobile phones and safeguarding is so important. Uh, I remember 
one camp. We were staying just outside Lewis. We'd gone to Brighton for the day. We'd been home uh, or back at the campsite for about six hours, 150 kids. I was a child, so fortunately I wasn't responsible. Um, And about six or seven hours after we got back from the day trip to Brighton, one of the teenagers wandered through the gate looking really tired. He'd been left behind and he'd basically walked from Brighton Seafront to Lewis and no one had even noticed he'd been left behind. We can probably all remember school trips or events where that has happened. Our very own Home Alone stories. But look down at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus is not accidentally left behind. He is left behind with a purpose. He is deliberately left behind. Now, I think this is just worth pausing to to notice here. As we read the Apostle Paul's writing, we see he has great confidence in the sovereignty and the providence of God. But he is also proactive and he also plans for the life and the growth and the health of the church. And I think it's worth noting here that church health in many ways is profoundly simple but it also takes deliberate actions. It's profoundly simple, but it doesn't just happen if you just go, oh, church growth will just happen. It probably won't. It takes simple actions. But if you take those simple actions, church growth often just follows in God's grace. Now, given the cultural setting of Crete, it's not surprising that having just heard the gospel of Jesus, the juvenile church is still somewhat chaotic. It's still somewhat unfinished. And to degree, this is part and parcel of every church, in every age and every stage. You know, every church family that's healthy will have a mixture of the old saints who've been kicking around for ages and actually are growing in Christ for decade after decade after decade. And it will have the new juvenile that looks like verse 12, who's just been born again, but the grace of God has saved, but still has a lot of edges to knock off and godly character to grow. So church life is always going to be messy. Church life will always be messy. It may be tempting for you to think, if only the pastor got it right, our church would never have any problems. There'd never be any personality clashes. There'd never be anyone who just didn't quite get it. The reality is, if a church is growing, you're always getting people joining it who don't get it yet. And they need patience, and they need love, and they need grace, and they need teaching, so they grow up in their godliness. Now, at Christmas dinner table, if you've got a family that comes and has Christmas with you, you don't expect your three-year-old to behave like your granny. You give the three-year-old some slack, and it might be that you give some granny some slack as well. (laughs) But we're family. We're all at different ages and stages. Now, you want people who are living age-appropriately. See, if you've been a Christian for 20 years and you haven't sorted out fundamental issues, it's right that your growth group leaders or your pastor comes alongside you and says in grace, come on, you know this stuff, what's going wrong? We'll think about that more in the second talk. But churches are always going to have some level of chaos in them, some level of disorder in them. That's why you need elders. That's why Timothy was, uh, that's why Titus was left behind. And uh, one of the reasons he was left behind was to put 
in order. So you can see that really clearly down in verse 5, can't you? He is left behind to um, put in order what was left unfinished. And that word order is really interesting, particularly for me as a Church of England Anglican vicar at the moment. I grew up in a Baptist church. I don't know how I became an Anglican. Been an Anglican for 30 years. I feel honoured to be in your building this evening. But orthodoxy is linked to that word put in order. So there's this idea that put, you, put, you put a church in order by being orthodox. And I, I think that's a really helpful thing to think through. Because we tend to think you put a church in order by getting some good rotor systems going. You know, you might use church builder or church suite. You might have a massive spreadsheet that everyone writes over because they can't do the rotor they were put down for. We tend to think if you can just get organised enough, church health will come. Perhaps if you can relay the car park or make sure the building's warm or serve decent coffee. Now, all of those things are important, but they do not predominantly put the church in order. What puts the church in order is orthodox teaching. It's orthodoxy that is the foundation for a healthy church. And that word put in order, that phrase put in order, comes from the word that is connected to orthodoxy. It is sound preaching and teaching of God's word throughout the church that brings health. And the second thing that Timothy was called to do was to appoint elders. Uh, By the appointment of those who are responsibly and correctly and carefully handling the word and overseeing others to do it. So God says your church needs overseers. It literally needs elders. Now what do we want or expect in our elders, in our leaders? Now often, I'm sure that's not the case here, Often church families want leaders that either reflect the leadership of the culture or the leadership of the church family themselves back. You you tend to want a leader that reflects the culture or reflects yourself back to you. We want leaders that we feel comfortable with or impressed by. But actually what does a church really need is it needs a leader who will teach the word of God in season and out of season. And you can forget most of those Google hits on church growth if you just do this. So simple. An elder must be someone who teaches and preaches in season and out season. But character, as we'll see now, is also absolutely clear. Um, And I'd like us to spend some time now in verses 6 to 9 just to think about this idea of the remarkably normal qualities of an elder. And as men, I think it's important that you think this through. Some of you are elders. Some of you will be supporting elders. Some of you may be elders in the future. But as I look around the room, all of you are men. And I think every quality we see here is a quality that should be in every man, not just elders. There's a sense in which Paul is saying to Titus, look out on the bunch of godly men that you've got and pick from them people to be elders. Now, I think... In uh, Timothy, we see that an elder is to be apt to teach and preach. So there is a qualification on top of a godly character. But there's a sense in which 
Paul isn't saying to Titus only pick the godly ones because Paul expects all of the men in the church to be pursuing godliness because they've been born again by the Spirit into relationship with Christ. So there's a sense in which every quality that we see here outlined for an elder is a quality that by grace you are to be pursuing. Every single one of you here today as men of God. Uh, Years ago we kept chickens. We used to live in the countryside. One year we bought a batch of fertilised chicken eggs, put them in an incubator and waited and watched. And I was so excited, I actually stayed up for nearly the whole of a night to watch them all hatch out. It was remarkable to watch them. And, and it was remarkable how quickly they started doing chickeny things. You know, one minute they're in an egg, the next minute they're starting to act like a chicken. You know, they, they've just been born as a chicken, they live as a chicken, they act as a chicken. And there's a sense in which, if we are born again in the Spirit, born again in Christ, we will just start to do Christy things. And you certainly want elders who are doing Christy things. But all of us the men are called to every character quality we see here. All of us are called to all of these character qualities. So, at some of those qualities. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man his children believe, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine, refute those who oppose it. Think about this. An elder is to be blameless. It doesn't mean that he has to be perfect. None of us here are perfect. I'm a sinner saved by grace. You're a sinner saved by grace. If you are honest about your own heart condition and the temptations you face today, if I'm honest about my heart condition and the temptations I face today, it's shocking, isn't it? How quickly we can just go all over the place in so many ways. We are only ever sinners saved by grace. As Luther said, we are beggars showing other beggars where the bread is. Blameless does not mean perfect. Jesus is perfect. But blameless does mean a life that is and Christ-like traits. And taking Christ seriously. We'll think more about how we can become more like Christ in the next talk. But we are to be men who are blameless, pursuing blamelessness in the way we treat our wives if we're married, the way we treat our children, the way we treat our colleagues, the way we treat our employers, our employees, their next door neighbour. They're to look at us and go, they might be a bit weird, those forest fold men. I've heard weird things about them. But yeah, I can't blame them for anything. We're to be men who pursue blamelessness. And when we mess up, we are to be quick to own up and repent. Our lives are to be on a trajectory of blamelessness. We're to be blameless at home, in verse 6. Now, an elder doesn't have to be married. Jesus wasn't. We know that. But if an elder is married, he is literally, the text says, to be a one-woman man. 
There is to be fidelity within his marriage. And I think this is a calling for all of us as men. Now, in God's grace, there has been forgiveness for the things that many of us have got wrong and feel guilty about. But the aim, the goal, is to be a one-woman man if we are married. The word for children here is referring to infants. Now, an elder cannot be responsible for an adult child's behaviour or belief. But the inference here is that when they are young and under his loving care, his children are not to be wild or disobedient. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be full of character and quirkiness. Um, My kids grew up as a vicar's child, you know, and people put ridiculous expectations on them that they never put on their own children. But there is a sense in which, if I'm going to manage the household of faith, my earthly family should look relatively functional, at least when my children are young. There's probably a correlation, Paul is saying, between the way I look after my earthly family and the way I'll probably look after a church family. But actually, God has called all of us, if we've got wives and children, to be godly, to be temperate, to be careful. We're all called to this, and we all need grace and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, And this blamelessness carries on with character. Once again, look at verses 7 to 8. This is our calling as men, and it's so countercultural. Titus, in everything set the example, sorry, verse 7 and 8. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That is what we're called to as Christian men, because that's what Christ was like. Now, Titus is given the job of picking out from these godly men that surround him, elders who have the aptitude to teach and lead. But there's a sense in which all Christian men are called to this. Look down at verses 7 to 8 again. Where does it pinch you? When I read that list, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, rather hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright and holy. Where, where does that pinch you? Where, where, do those, where do those words, some of them might go, yeah, I think I've got that one nailed, tick, I think I've got that one nailed, tick, that's not a problem for me, tick. But that one, that one actually, is a challenge for me. Where does that list rub you as a Christian man? Where does it rub me as a Christian man? And maybe something this evening as a result tonight, we need to go home and go, actually God, I've realised that that area is not Christy. You know, that that chick looked chickeny very quickly. This trait in my life does not look very Christy. God have mercy. God help me. And then as verse 9 unfolds, and this is more focused on eldership, he must be someone who holds firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. In a sense, that's the quality bit that we see here. Your elders must be able to hold firmly hold on to, like their lives depend on it, because the health of the church does depend on it, the trustworthy message that has been taught. Um, As Christians, we are not innovators. We are communicators. Innovate the message. 
The message was given by Christ to the apostles who have then passed it on to the church. And all of the creeds and all of the Church of England formularies, believe it or not, basically say Jesus gave it to the apostles, the apostles gave it to the church and it's the church's responsibility in every generation to hold firmly to what was taught by Christ and the apostles and teach it in this generation because it's the teaching of Christ as passed on by the apostles that makes the church healthy. That's the secret of a healthy church. Firmly. You might have all, ex- all sorts of expectations for your, for your pastor, for your minister. There are all sorts of weird expectations for a vicar, I can assure you. you know, don't vicars do that? No, I don't do that. Don't vicars do No. But we actually often miss the expectations we should have of them. That they should be men who hold firmly to the word. And as men here, how, if you're married, will you be a blessing to your family as well as providing for them and having a temperament and a character that's Christ-like? You will be a blessing to them as you hold firmly to the word and you teach the word appropriately to your children or your grandchildren or just by the way you live for Christ amongst them. We hold firmly and we hold on. Why? Because we are surrounded by people who refute and oppose sound doctrine. Um, You can look down in verses 10 to 16 in your own time at what happens when infirm doctrine is taught, when foundational truth is neglected. It is chaos and carnage. Uh, As a member of the Church of England at the moment, my heart is breaking that the gospel heritage of a reformed evangelical denomination that was set up by the Reformation, which was founded on the blood of the martyrs, is walking away from what was given by Christ and the apostles and teaching the spirit of the age. And and what is happening as the spirit of the age is taught, church families are collapsing. People don't know where to go for light and life and love because it is the teaching of Christ and the apostles that we hold on to and teach. And when we stop doing it, the church becomes unhealthy and it dies and diminishes. So thank God for your healthy church here. How do you keep it healthy? Is it by googling spiritual health? Well, that might throw up a few articles that are useful. Primarily, it's by rejoicing in the gospel and teaching the gospel and holding on to the gospel and expecting your leaders to teach the gospel, and not getting cross with them when they teach the bits of the Bible that you find difficult or challenging. But actually saying, yes, this is difficult, but keep teaching it, because this will make us healthy. How do you grow a healthy church? You keep teaching. And can I just encourage us to think through, just as we break and have cholesterol eater, How spiritually healthy are you at the moment as a Christian man? When you look at verses 5 to 8, what are you thinking? Yeah, I'm getting healthier, I'm getting more Christ. A bit more, yeah, a bit more like plateaued or don't you care? Listen to sound teaching. And think about how we are transformed by sound teaching. And it's not just about by trying hard. It's not just about by trying hard. 
Um, I think the pizza is just about to arrive. Um, so why don't we just be quiet for a moment. I'll pray and then we'll fill our arteries with wonderful tasting food. Let's be quiet, reflect and then I'll pray. <laughs>